Last night, we left Daniel with a puzzle. He had received a symbolic prophecy that had been explained to him by Gabriel. The angel had told him exactly who the ram was, the horns, who they were, who the goat was, who its great horn was, who the four horns were, who the little horn was, exactly how long the prophecy was and what would happen at the end of the prophecy. He'd only left out one small detail, the start date. The good news is that Gabriel came back and gave the start date. The other great news is that tonight we will study it. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to the End of Time series. My name is Sharissa, and wherever you're joining us from tonight, we are so excited that you are here. And we've been hearing from you all week, and we really appreciate all your feedback as well. Right now, we are coming to you live from the East Coast of Australia, and I wanted you to know that because after Lyle's presentation in just a few moments, as we have done each night, we're going to have an opportunity to pitch your questions to Lyle. So if you are watching on our YouTube channel or you're on, on our Facebook live stream, please make the most of the comments section as you're listening to the presentation. And whatever Bible questions come to your mind, write them down because we have moderators watching for your questions to send them to me here so that we can ask Lyle about those after he is done. So with that said, let's listen now as Lyle pre uh, presents on tonight's subject, The End for Israel. Nation will rise against nation. There will be droughts, pandemics, and earthquakes. When these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. In the blistering heat of the Judean desert, 430 meters below sea level, the lowest natural place on earth lies the Dead Sea. It was on the northwestern shore of this lake, on a hillside honeycombed with caves, that in 1947 a young Bedouin boy made the most significant archaeological discovery of all time. As the story goes, Muhammad Ed Dib had lost some of the family's goats and while searching for them, randomly threw a stone through the mouth of a cave. Hearing the sound of breaking pottery, he was initially afraid that he may have disturbed an evil spirit. But his curiosity and the lure of treasure finally got the better of him. Returning with his older cousin Juma Muhammad, they discovered some clay jars and broken pottery that contained some old leather scrolls. Little did they realize, as they tried to sell the leather to a shoemaker in Bethlehem, the treasure they held in their hands. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls revealed, amongst other documents, a significant portion of the Old Testament scriptures that was at least a thousand years closer to the original than anything yet discovered it definitively answered the question as to whether the scriptures had undergone any significant changes since the time of Christ. Scholars studying the scrolls were stunned to find that in over a thousand years of copying by hand, no significant change had taken place in the words of the scriptures, revealing that the Old Testament we have today is virtually identical in wording to the one that was used by Jesus himself. Such a level of accuracy in an ancient document that has been repeatedly copied is unparalleled in human history and has no satisfactory explanation outside of the supernatural divine intervention of God. Probably the most significant aspect of the Dead Sea Scrolls is their relationship to Jesus. The majority of these doc documents were written long before the Christian era and long before Jesus was born. But within the Old Testament, most of the details of his life are recorded. This makes Jesus the only founder of a global religion whose life was written down in detail before he ever lived. So who is Jesus? Today, Jesus is universally recognized as the most influential human being that has ever lived on earth. Throughout history, more has been written about the short three and a half year ministry of this one individual than has been written about any other person that has ever lived.
Time magazine described him as the single most powerful figure, not merely in these two millenniums, but in all human history. So who really is Jesus? Was he just a spiritual man with good ideas like Buddha, Muhammad or Jeremiah? Or was he something more? When the disciple Nathaniel met Jesus, he said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. Jesus answered him, because I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? Jesus did not correct Nathaniel's statement that he was the son of God and king of Israel, but instead revealed that he would have even more proof of his divinity and rulership than he had already been given. While Nathaniel recognized Jesus as merely the king of the Jews, Jesus claimed that his kingdom encompassed far more. While speaking to the local governor, Pilate, Pilate said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. That's John chapter 18. Jesus claimed to be a king indeed, not just of this world, but of the entire universe. For a Jew to claim such a title was to claim to be the Lord, Jehovah God, in human flesh. He later plainly stated, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's Revelation chapter 1, verse 8 and 22, verse 12 and 13. You see, Jesus did not just claim to be a good man with great ideas. He claimed to be far more than even a prophet or spiritual leader. In fact, Jesus is the only founder of a global religion who claimed to be Almighty God. Because of these claims by Jesus, we're left with really only three options to who, as to who he actually is. Number one, Jesus is God, just as he claimed to be. Number two, Jesus was an insane person. Or number three, Jesus was history's most effective liar and deceiver. Well, Jesus himself challenged us to verify the authenticity of his claim. He said, search the scriptures. These are they which testify of me. John 5.39. To prove his authenticity to those who questioned it, Jesus did not direct people to his miracles. For Satan can do supernatural things as well. He did not call fire down from heaven or other dramatic events. If he had done so, how would we, living a couple of millennia later, be able to verify those events? Instead, Jesus simply directed the people to search the Old Testament for within its prophecies they would find all the evidence they needed to conclusively reveal who he is. The famous mathematician, Professor Peter Stoner, calculated that the chances of just eight of these prophecies being randomly fulfilled in the life of one man was one to, the, one to ten to the power of seventeen. That's the equivalent of covering, covering Australia 500 millimetres deep in dollar coins and having a blindfolded person find one that you marked on his first try. Add another eight prophecies and make it 16. Now it is the equivalent of making a globe of dollar coins. If you place the centre of that globe at the sun, the outer rim would reach Neptune. And you would still have to find that one marked coin while blindfolded on the first try. And yet, there are over 350 prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus. Just digest that for a moment. So, the, for, the, so for the purpose of this illustration, let me just give you 10 fulfilled prophecies, which were completely out of the control of Jesus as a human. To start with, the Bible says where he would be born. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Micah 5.2 But Joseph and Mary, the parents of Jesus, lived in Nazareth. That's 130 kilometers from Bethlehem. Not only that, but Mary reached full term in her pregnancy without leaving Nazareth. It's unlikely that peasants in those days had any form of transport other than walking. And it's hard to imagine a woman nine months pregnant walking 130 kilometers. And yet, right on time, 
Caesar Augustus decided to take a census and tax the world. In the process, he ordered everyone back to their birthplace. And so Joseph and Mary were forced to make the arduous journey to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Then we find that Jesus' mother would be a virgin. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14. Some struggle with this concept of the virgin birth and choose not to believe the Bible because of it. And so we ask the question, which is harder for God, to produce a virgin birth or to predict the event 700 years in advance? Surely the prediction is more significant than having a virgin conceive. After all, with modern medicine, we can produce virgin births easily today, and we're only humans. Living to the end of his life, the Bible detailed the events of his trial and crucifixion, even stating who would betray him. It says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That was Psalms 41.9. Judas was one of his closest friends, and specifically ate the Passover bread with Jesus the night he betrayed him. The Bible continues to detail his betrayal. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11, verse 12. Now we're unable to predict the cost of our fuel from one week to the next. And yet the Bible predicted the betrayal price of Jesus a thousand years in advance. But that's not all. Think about this. Within 200 years, Australia has had three official currencies with coins made from 10 different alloys. At one time, Australia even used Spanish currency. It would be impossible to predict what currency and in what format Australia would be using a thousand years from now. When this prophecy was given, coins would not even be invented for another 400 years. These early coins were made from gold, electrum, silver, copper. And then a thousand years after the prediction, Jesus was betrayed for exactly 30 silver coins, just as Zechariah had predicted. And then Zechariah goes even further and tells us what would happen to the money and how it would be used after the death of Jesus. It says, And the Lord said to me, Cast it to the potter. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Zechariah 11 verse 13. Notice how specific this prophecy is. The money would be thrown it would be thrown into the temple, it would be for the potter. And that's exactly what happened 500 years later. Judas took 30 silver coins as payment for the betrayal of Jesus. After Jesus was convicted to die, he was so distraught by what had happened that he took the money and threw it into the temple at the priests before committing suicide by hanging himself. The priests used the money to buy a field used by potters to collect good quality clay. This field was then used as a cemetery for foreigners. Finally, there are quite a number of prophecies about how Jesus would die. And this should not surprise us, as this was God's greatest act of love and secured our salvation. 700 years previously, Isaiah had declared, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And then, it, of course, it happened just as predicted. While Jesus was being dragged through the streets of Jerusalem, Matthew records how they spit in his face, beat him, others struck him with the palms of their hands and plucked out his beard. After which, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. What is even more fascinating is that crucifixion was not even invented as a form of execution until at least the Persian, if not the Greek era. And yet the Bible exactly described how Jesus would die a thousand years previously. Psalms 22 verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. Then we find that Jesus was condemned and crucified as the worst of the worst criminals and yet was buried with great honor in the grave of the wealthiest man in Jerusalem. All this being predicted 700 years before it happened. Isaiah stated, and they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death. Finally, a thousand years before it happened, the Bible predicted that the tomb of Jesus would be empty as a result of his resurrection. In Psalm 16:10, it says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, the grave, 
nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus is the only religious leader whose tomb is empty. And this claim is not just made by his followers. It was the most avowed enemies of Jesus who made the loudest claims that the tomb of Jesus was empty. And of course, it is on the fact of the empty tomb that we have the promise of the resurrection and eternal life. However, the greatest messianic prophecy of all time is contained within last night's prophecy. This prediction is so specific and so explosive that both Satan and his agents on earth have left no stone unturned to ensure that it never sees the light of day. It has incredible implications for our understanding of the time of the end. In fact, the secret society during the Dark Ages went so far as to attempt to turn the prophecy around and apply it to Antichrist instead of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe me that Satan is that effective, then stay tuned and see if you have even ever heard of this prophecy as we dig back into the Bible. Lyle, I am so intrigued right now. <laughs> and I hope our listeners are intrigued too. I'm really looking forward to what we're going to study together as we dig into this prophecy. And before we do, I just want to remind our listeners we're live right now. So at this point, we're going to have a Bible study. And if you have questions on what you're listening to, please type them into the chat if you're on our YouTube channel or our Facebook page, and I'll be able to send them to Lyle. We have moderators watching those. Also, a reminder that connected with each presentation, we have a free offer. And tonight, it is this book right here. It's called The Desire of Ages, a beautiful book on the life of Jesus. If you would like to obtain your free copy, all you have to do is simply text the word Messiah to the number on the screen. Or if you're listening to us on radio, it's 0428-833-386. Lyle, we have a few questions we okay. could just quickly look at. And then sure, absolutely. I always look forward to your questions each time that uh, we come on here for the N.Digital. It makes it so much fun. It does. I love that we can do this live and I love that we can talk with you guys. So Absolutely. All right. Well, this is one from last night. Yes. And it was, it was Luke 17, verse 34. talks about two men being in the bed. Why are two men in the bed? Yes, you will notice that uh, that's kind of an, an, an odd saying right there. Let me read it for you. Luke 17. Uh, oh, that's Matthew. Matthew won't work. Let me go over to Luke <laughs> Luke chapter 17, this is talking about the return of Jesus and how that, you know, people can be side by side at the return of Jesus. One is saved and one is lost. Okay, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes, here we are. Luke chapter 17 and verse 34, I tell you in that night, there shall be two men in one bed, the one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Why does the Bible speak about two men being in one bed. There are a number of points that we can look at here. First of all, if you are reading a Bible uh, like this one here, which is a King James Version, you'll find that the word men is placed in italics. That's because when you translate from one language to another, sometimes you have to add extra words that are not in the original so that you can, so that it kind of makes sense. And when this was translated back in 1611, of course, men was a word that simply referred to mankind or humanity. So two people in one bed. Okay. Now, the word men is, has been added in here. So it says, I tell you, in that night, there shall be two in one bed. That can easily be a couple, two people in one bed. That's a good point because it's actually in italics in my Bible, which yes. means it's supplied. It's a supplied word. That's right. Okay. okay. There's another way of looking at it as well, because the Bible says that when we die, we sleep. There are hundreds of verses that describe death as being like a sleep. Now, if death is like a sleep, then the grave is like a bed. Mm. In fact, you could go to, uh, say, this one here in Psalms chapter 139 in verse 8, where it says, If I ascend up into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the grave, behold, you are there. So another way of looking at the passage would be two people in one grave. Okay. One is saved, one is lost. Oh, thank you, Lyle. Good answer. Uh, this one is from Dana on Facebook. He came in the back end in the messages. He has a question about Wednesday night's presentation about injustice. Who are the sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6, 1 to 4? Okay, so we talked about the sons of God in Job chapter 1 as being, you know, the heads of the various, you know, 
creations of God. But Genesis chapter 6 is different. Okay, Genesis chapter 6 is not in heaven. This is taking place on earth. So let's read what the Bible says over here in uh, Genesis chapter 6. And the Bible says uh, in verse 1, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, here's what we need to do with the Bible. There's a couple of principles to understanding the Bible. One of those principles is that we should always run with the most obvious context. There's your first one. Your second one is probably more important, and that is that you should never, ever step outside of the Bible to come up with some kind of interpretation that is not in Scripture. Mm -hmm. Because if you step outside of the Bible and you go to, you know, some ancient Jewish uh, commentaries or Gnostic Gospels or something like this, they've got some very creative ideas on who the sons of God are. Okay, the Bible talks about on earth there is the Son of God, that's Jesus Christ. And then the Bible talks about the sons of God. And you can read that in 1 John, uh, 1 John chapter 3. We read this one the other night. We'll read it again. Uh, this is your only other option for the sons of God if you're going to stay in the Bible. Uh, verse 1, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So the Bible describes us as being the sons and daughters of God. What have you got happening here? You've got two groups of people that are developing after sin has happened. You've got the descendants of Seth, which, are the, which is the righteous line. You've got the descendants of Cain, which is the wicked line. And the Bible says that the descendants of Seth, the righteous line, the sons of God, begin to intermarry with the descendants of Cain, the daughters of men. And that creates all kinds of problems and that creates sin and that causes our world to become an environment where uh, the Bible says, you know, God had to destroy the world. Now, some people will say, well, you know, we think that this, these sons of God here were actually demons. Well, they wouldn't be called sons of God if they were demons. They'd be called sons of the devil. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing in Scripture anywhere to indicate such a thing. Okay. And... Uh, even if these sons of God were demons, we know that demons are angels. And Jesus specifically said that the angels do not marry, neither give in marriage. The Bible is crystal clear on that. So it's impossible because we're talking about marriage here. It's impossible for these to be demons right here. Well, they can only be human beings. That's a good answer because you answered two questions in one. Oh, did I? Someone else asked, um, do fallen angels intermingle with humans? So Okay, they intermingle with humans in that... We are always in the presence of fallen angels, which can be a little bit scary. But we need never fear because there are more good angels than bad ones. And it only takes one good angel. And there's always a good one in our presence. And if we're covered by the blood of Jesus, we've got nothing to fear from demonic forces. That's they can't touch us. That's really good news. It is. I think on that immunized note... By, immunized against demons by the blood of Jesus. That's right. I think on that note, I think we're ready to get into this exciting yes. study. Yes. Yes. Where do let's we go? Let's get into it. Okay, let's go over to Daniel chapter 9 and let's give ourselves a little bit of context. So in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel has this prophecy that is focused on the end of time. And as it's focused on the end of time, what uh, you know, the Bible says, under 2,300 years days, symbolizing years, and then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, we found last night that the cleansing of the sanctuary is symbolic of the judgment. This is interesting because we know that the judgment takes place in heaven. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 7, uh, where it says, you know, in verse 9, I beheld till thrones were cast down. The Ancient of Days sat. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like the pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame. His wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were open. Mm. This is taking place in heaven. Mm -hmm. Court okay. scene. Court scene right there. Judgment in heaven. The other thing that is interesting is, look at this verse. Go over to Hebrews. Hold your finger here in Daniel. Yeah. And if you're following along at home, hold your finger there in Daniel. We're going to spend most of our time there. But go over to Hebrews. And Charissa, why don't you read for me uh, chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Sure. 
Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So the Bible here speaks about the true tabernacle, the true tabernacle that God built and not human beings. That true tabernacle is where Jesus and the Father sit. Therefore, that true tabernacle and the word tabernacle, sanctuary, temple, it's all the same thing. Mm -hmm. This is God's temple and this is God's temple in heaven. That's where the judgment takes place, in God's temple in heaven. All right, so 2,300 years to the judgment, 2,300 years until the judgment takes place in God's temple in heaven. We just need a start date. Uh, we just need a start date, don't we? <laughs> we do. and, and you notice you come to the end of chapter 8 and, and you've got this statement here. Uh, Gabriel finishes explaining exactly who the goat is, sorry, the ram is, exactly who the goat is, exactly who the great horn is, who the four horns are, who the little horn is, how long the prophecy is. In fact, in, the, in, in Daniel 8 and verse 14, notice what he says. And this, is, and this is just the craziest thing. He says, he said unto me, unto 2,300 days. Mm. We never speak like that. If we're going to give a time period, we say from, That's right. from here unto here. He's missed out the from. There's no from there. He's just gone in with the unto to really mess with Daniel's head. He says unto 2000, and there's no from, and Daniel's like, what's going on? And he's waiting for the explanation. And Gabriel comes in verse 26 to give the explanation. And Gabriel always, he just says, oh, the, the vision of the evenings and the mornings, the days, which was told is true. Wherefore, shout the vision, for it shall be for many days. <laughs> and then Gabriel just leaves. And Daniel's like, no, no, explain this to me. And this is why Daniel was so earnest in prayer that it ended up having him thrown into the lion's den. Mm. All right. So the good news is we have Daniel's prayer. The prayer that he was praying in his window is recorded right here in chapter 9. We're going to skip down to the end of it. And we're going to look at a couple of uh, verses just to get some context real fast. All right, verse 17. What is Daniel asking about? Bible says, Now hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications and cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Okay, so he's praying about the sanctuary. Why? Because Daniel has had this. He has a 2,300-day prophecy. That's either 2,300 years or 6.3 years. And then he has a 70-week prophecy. Uh, sorry, a 70-day prophecy. Uh, a 70-year prophecy mm -hmm. given by Jeremiah. And so he's praying for the restoration of the sanctuary and he wants to understand, what's Daniel 8 all about? What's going on here? He's trying to figure it out and that's why he's praying about what Gabriel had shown to him. So continue on. Next verse. Verse 18. Verse 18 of Daniel 9. My God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. So he's praying about the temple. He's praying about the city. He wants to see them restored. The next, the next verse. Uh, verse 19 says, O Lord, hear for your city and your people. Once again, you see what he's praying about. He's praying about the restoration of the temple and of Jerusalem because that's what the prophecy refers to. That's what he doesn't understand from chapter 8. Uh, verse 20. Now, while I was praying for the holy mountain of my God. That's the temple, the holy mountain. That's where God's temple is on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. Next verse. Uh, verse 21. The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, reached me. Okay, so Gabriel comes back. The same angel comes back. And Daniel says, this is the angel who I saw at the beginning of the vision. So this is the continuation of the, of the vision mm -hmm. that we have right here. Uh, this, which vision is that? Clearly, that's the one that he had in chapter 8. Then the next verse. Verse 22. And said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Okay, so here you've got Gabriel comes back and he says, now I'm going to explain it. I, didn't, I know I didn't explain it last time, even though he explained everything except one point. He says, now I'm going to explain it. All right, next verse. Therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Okay, so he's commanded. He tells Daniel, I want you to stop and think about the vision. Which vision? The one that's... The one in chapter 8. Yeah. So these two are linked together. You cannot separate them. They, the, the whole context ties these two prophecies or these, these two chapters together so that Gabriel is simply continuing on where he left off. Now, if he left off by not explaining the start date, we would expect him to come back and give us a start date. Isn't that so? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Oh, for sure. Oh, wow. This is getting really exciting. Yeah, we're about to get to the start then. All right, we just need to do another plug. If you want to know more about tonight's subject, I would encourage you to really get your hands on this free offer tonight connected with the presentation. It's a book called The Desire of Ages. To get your free copy, simply text the word Messiah to the number on your screen, 0428-833-386. And just some very quick questions from the audience. Uh, this one's from Christina Yan on Facebook, and she asks, how do you know that the book of Daniel was written when it was written and not later? Okay, so there's a, first of all, there's a really good question. There is no internal evidence within the book of Daniel to indicate a late authorship of the book of Daniel. None. There is no external evidence from the book of Daniel to indicate a late authorship of the book of Daniel. None. The only reason that anybody ever ascribes a late authorship to the book of Daniel is its accuracy. And so when people do that, they are admitting that this book is absolutely accurate. Now, that does not solve their problems because they will still put the book of Daniel either in the late Greek era or the early Roman era. And yet the prophecies of Daniel extend to our time and are just, have, have been just as accurate down through history as they have up until now. So by moving the authorship of Daniel forward, they don't solve the problem of the supernatural divine inspiration of the book of Daniel. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, this was people just writing down history. Well, that history is still being fulfilled. Now, the next problem with that, of course, is that Jesus believed in the book of Daniel. Jesus believed that it was written during the time of, it was written by Daniel. Because Jesus makes this statement over here. We read this last night in Matthew 24, 15. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet... So Jesus believed in Daniel. So you can't, you can't have a late date for the book of Daniel and still believe in Jesus. Finally, what you're going to find is that there are historical details within the book of Daniel that were lost to history in the Greek and Roman era. Details that no Greek or Roman historian ever recorded, but that we now know are 100% correct. For instance, Belshazzar as being the last king of Babylon, is one such you know, glaringly obvious detail. I could go on all night. Okay. There are many evidences for uh, the book of Daniel being written by Daniel and being co-authored, this is interesting, by Nebuchadnezzar. Ooh. He wrote chapter 4 That's true. himself. Very good. All right, this one's from Chris Chandler. He's on YouTube. Good to have you with us, Chris. He asks, did the angel Gabriel get Lucifer's position of covering cherub after he fell? Okay, so I can't give you a Bible verse for that. I think that there's probably very good evidence for that, but I can't give you a Bible verse for it. Okay. Um, how about this one? This one is from Jared, also watching us on YouTube, and he's asking who or what are the Nephilim? Okay, so if we go back to, uh, that's in, uh, oh, yeah, so, so, so somebody's asking about this one. Genesis, Genesis chapter 6. Let's read about it back here. Genesis chapter 6. And we have the sons of God, so the daughters of men that they were fair. They took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit will not always strive with man for his flesh. His days will be 120 years. And then it goes on and it says, and there were giants in the earth in those days. Mm. And also after that, when the sons of daughters came in under the daughters, of, sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And here's where you find the word Nephilim coming through. And so, once again, you have these legends and myths that have come down from the past, from you know, Gnostics and uh, you know, some of the Jews and so forth who have said, well, this was demons uh, copulating with humans. Well, the Bible says that that doesn't happen. And that, you know, uh, these hybrid, you know, angel, demon humans were being born and they were the Nephilim. No, that's not what the Bible is teaching. The Bible is simply teaching that the Nephilim were giants. Mm -hmm. That's not hard to understand. Everything back then was bigger. We know that. It would be most unusual if humans were not bigger back then. We know this from the fossil record. I mean, hey, for instance, crocodiles were like 60 feet long. Uh, dragonflies had a wingspan of a metre. You can go down to the Sydney Museum and you can see wombats the size of a hippopotamus. Wow. You can see... <laughs> Giant kangaroos. It was called the megafauna and the megaflora. The 
Uh, we're broadcasting from Newcastle on the east coast of Australia here. Mm -hmm. And so this is a coal area and our coal seams required to form those coal seams required vegetation a thousand feet thick. Wow. That's three times the height of any trees we have right now. We could go on and on and on. You know, snails that were literally 300 millimetres long. Imagine one of those getting loose in your cabbage patch. Uh, it could go through quite a bit in one night. So everything was bigger back then. It would be unusual if humans were not bigger as well. And the word Nephilim is the word that is used to describe just giant human beings. Mm. Thank you, Lyle. I think we should get back to our study. We should. We should. Uh, we need we? this start Daniel date. Nine, Daniel 9. <laughs> I, I, see, now I left my... Um, you were smart. I was smart. <laughs> Somebody didn't keep their finger there no, like no. I told them to. <laughs> All right, where are we up to? Uh, do we, we get up to verse 24 yet? No. Okay, can you read for us verse 24? All right, 70 weeks are determined, which is another word for cut off, right. for your people or, and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. That's quite a list. It is. Okay, let's start at the top. The Bible says 70 weeks are cut off. Yes. Okay, so let me, let me point out the obvious right here. If you're going to cut something off, of something, then you have to have something that is longer so that you can cut it off of the longer piece, right? Correct. Okay, good. So what's he cutting it off of? You've only got one choice here, and that is the 2,300 years. Okay, 70 weeks. A day symbolizes a year, mm -hmm. seven days to a week, seven times 70, what does that add up to? 490. Okay, quick maths right there. Sharissa's. <laughs> Get your calculators out and check us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is a prophecy that is so specific and so detailed, you can actually do this prophecy on your calculator. You can. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, where are we? So, it's, so we've got this period that's cut off. Let's just talk very quickly about the things that are going to happen uh, during this time. Uh, the Bible says to make an end of sins, uh, finish transgression, in other words, for the uh, people of Israel to get their lives in, in order. Mm -hmm. Then it says to make reconciliation for iniquity and bring in everlasting righteousness. Who does that refer to? Jesus. That can only be Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is the only one who ever made reconciliation for iniquity. So here's what we know. You've got 2,300 years, 70 weeks have been cut off. Within that time period, somewhere you have Jesus, mm. the earthly ministry of Jesus. Okay. Then it says, then what else is going to happen right at the end? Um, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Okay. What, why seal the vision? What, what purpose does a seal accomplish? Preserve. It preserves. Absolutely. So in, back in the day, you'd write something on a piece of paper, write a letter, roll it up, pour uh, wax onto the joint, put your signet ring, your seal into it, and then you can post it to the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. If it arrives with the seal intact, that's a guarantee of authenticity. Mm -hmm. Why does God need to give a guarantee of authenticity to this prophecy? The answer is simple, because the judgment is going to take place in heaven where we can't see it. Wow. So what Jesus does is like, okay, you're not going to be able to see this. So here's what we'll do. We'll take the 2,300 days, we'll cut 70 weeks off, and then we will give you a whole list of events to happen in that 70 weeks that happen on earth, which will be the guarantee of authenticity of what, you are going to, what is going to happen at the very end. That makes total sense. Seals it. Beautiful. And it's historically verifiable. Okay. I love um, that. All right. But we still don't have our from. No, we do don't. We? No, we it's don't. just like Gabriel's come along and said, okay, we've got, we got, we got 2,300 years here. We're going to cut off 70 weeks and all these things are going to happen. Next verse. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay. Did you catch, if you were listening, did you catch what it said? Know therefore and understand that from. from now you've got your from. There's our from. <laughs> All right. All right. From the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to Messiah will be 62 weeks. Mm. Okay, so 62 times 7, what does that come up to, Sharissa? Oh, here we go. Here we go. Is it 478? It's 434 plus 49. Which is? 400 and. Uh, four, um, now my quick maths is, li is letting me down as well. <laughs> 400 and, anyway, it's 434 plus 49. Let me grab a calculator on here while you're talking. Yeah, that's right. You do that. 
<laughs> All right, so we've got that until Messiah the Prince, but this is our start date. We 483. now have 483. 483. I kept thinking 487, probably Sorry. because I'm, I've got the start date stuck in my head. And I threw you. That's all right. Good fun. This is how you know it's live, <laughs> see? All right, where are we up to? Uh, we have the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. The Bible says that is our start date. So when does that commandment happen? Do we have a passage in the Bible that gives us the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. The exciting thing is, we do. Where is it, Lyle? It's in Ezra. <laughs> Why don't you take us to Ezra chapter 6 right. and 7. Why don't, let's just start with uh, Ezra 7 there, uh, where it gives us in verses 6 to 11 the start date. This Ezra came up from Babylon to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes and came to Jerusalem in the fifth month. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the scribe. And then you have, you know, follows on from there, big, long decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, but Jerusalem's already there. How can Jerusalem be already be there if this is the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a puzzle, right? It is. Okay, and the reason is this is the third decree. There was one that was made by Cyrus. Then there was one that was made by uh, Darius the Great. Not Darius the Mede, Darius the Great. And then there was one that was made, this one, by Artaxerxes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so why do we choose this one instead of the obvious one being the first one? Here's the simple answer. You have to look at this prophecy from a Middle Eastern Jewish perspective rather than a Western perspective. So last year at the beginning of COVID, I bought a house. It was great. Good on you. (laughs) Yes, except I didn't. The bank bought a house. Mm. We all know that. Now, if I was in the Middle Eastern Jewish culture, then I would say then in 30 years' time when I pay off the house... I would say I bought a house. Why? Because they will always date it from the completion or the fulfillment rather than from its inception. Mm. So what you have is this. Cyrus started the decree. Darius confirmed the decree. Artaxerxes completed the decree. And that's why we choose Artaxerxes' date. And just in case you're sitting there thinking, really? Is that really the case? Is Lyle really on the money with that? Read for me what it says in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 14. They built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And is that Isaiah or Ezra? Ezra. Ezra. Did I say Isaiah? You said Isaiah. But it was Ezra. Ezra. Ezra chapter 6 verse 14. All right. Notice what it says here. They built it according to the commandment of God and according to the commandment. Notice that. Singular. The single commandment of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. And it wasn't until it was completed by Artaxerxes that we have the date. And the date is 457 BC. Okay, now. Easily established. Yep. Um, true history. That was airtight. It's an airtight start date. We've got Yes, there. we do. Anyone got any questions how we come up with that start date? Just shoot them through because yes. this is, you know, even, even Sir Isaac Newton says that this is one of the easiest dates to establish in history. 457 BC. That gives us a start date. Excellent. Well, I'm really excited. We have to keep, uh, I want to come back to this because there's something more to say. But just a big plug for this book. It's the free offer for tonight. If you'd like to get this book, please text the word Messiah to the number on your screen, 0428-833-386. We'll take a question. Take one question and I'm sitting on the edge of my seat to share with you what is about to come up. Okay. Okay. So I'm picking one here and it's just going to be this one. This is from Nathaniel Smith. And he's viewing us on YouTube. Welcome. He says, in John 1 verse 46, was Nathaniel being facetious or was Nazareth considered bad? No, Nazareth was considered bad. This was one of those towns. It was actually, a, you know, every town has a reason for existence. This one uh, had a, a bit of a reputation as a stopover town for Roman soldiers who were traveling from one part of the empire to another. You know, and I know there's revisionist histories out there who are trying to say, oh, no, no, Nazareth. No, it wasn't. It was a nasty place. Mm. And so, yeah, he grew up in in very underprivileged circumstances where Jesus came from. And it's a little bit like, you know, we have certain suburbs. I won't name them. But we have certain suburbs that we all know they kind of have that seedy reputation, don't they? 
Nazareth was like that. And if somebody, you know, if a prophet came out of one of those, you'd be like, really? <laughs> Good point. Good question. All right. Well, let's take us through now. What all right, does all, all right, this right, mean? right, 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 right. Okay, back to verse 25. Because remember we said there'd be a whole bunch of events. Yes. The Bible says in verse 25, where are we? That from the commandment, we've got that, 457 BC, unto Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 40, that's 800 and, sorry. 483. 483 years. All right, so here's what happens. If you go forward 483 years Mm -hmm. from 457 BC, you're going to come to the year 27 AD. Okay. Is that when Jesus was born? No. So you've got a major problem, don't you? We have a huge problem on our hands. All right, watch this. Because in the Bible, Jesus is known by so many different names and the Bible never uses those names randomly. He's called the Son of God, the Son of Man. He's called Emmanuel. He's called Jesus. He's called the Lamb of God. And here, unlike previously in the book of Daniel, where Jesus is referred to as the Son of God or the Son of Man, here it says Messiah. And the word Messiah means anointed one. And in AD 27, Jesus was baptized and anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism right on time. No way. Can you prove that, Lyle? Absolutely. 27 AD. That was when Jesus was born 4 BC, baptized 27 AD. The Bible says being about 30 years old. And you can go back through the whole history. I don't have time to do all the history right now. I'm looking at the clock. We've got a lot to co- put it through in the question times okay. and we'll cover some history. All right, all right. Okay, um, so we've got the baptism of Jesus there. Then in verse 26, let's cover verse 26 very quickly. Daniel 9, verse 26, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Ah, and the he died people, for us. He did. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, and so after Messiah dies, he's cut off, he dies for us. The Bible says that the sanctuary, the temple, and the city would be destroyed. And that's exactly what happened. That happened in 70 AD. The Romans came through, and that temple has never been rebuilt. Mm. Okay, then we have, okay, so we've cut, we've got 62 and seven weeks. Yes. And by the way, that's seven weeks, 49 years, that's how long it took to complete the rebuilding of Jerusalem. We've got 62 and seven, that's 483 years. It brings us to 27 AD, but there was 490. There's still seven years. There's still seven years. Somebody was asking me. Where do you find the seven-year tribulation in the Bible? It's true. We've had a few You find of those. it nowhere in the Bible. There is nowhere in Scripture that describes a seven-year tribulation. This is the only seven-year period anywhere in Bible prophecy. And it's connected to the Messiah. It's not talking about the end of time. There's no gap here. You've got 490 years that have been cut off the 2,300. You haven't got you know, 483 that are cut off here and then seven down there. It's 490 cut off right here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, where are we up to? We need to find out what happens in that last week. Read for me verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Okay. So how long did Jesus confirmed the everlasting covenant with, and by the way, some people make up a covenant here and they make up this thing of this earthly covenant. There's no verse for that. If you're going to make stuff up, you've got to have a verse for it, friend. The covenant you find in the Bible is the everlasting covenant. There's no human covenant anywhere in the Bible. No human covenant made it with the Antichrist. This is the greatest messianic prophecy anywhere in scripture. Imagine the evil that it would take. Imagine the evil mind that invented the idea that this was not about Jesus Christ, this was about the Antichrist. Mm. The Bible says in the middle of the week, you've got seven years. The middle is going to take you how long to get there? Three and a half. Three and a half. So from Jesus' baptism, you go three and a half years, the Bible says he brings an end to the sacrifice and to the offering. What happened three and a half years after Jesus' baptism? The Bible says that Jesus died on Calvary, that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, and it brought an end to the sacrificial system. 
because Jesus fulfilled everything that the sacrifice of the Lamb pointed forward to. And that was in AD 31, and that was right on time, just as God said it would be. Everything fulfilled exactly as the Bible said. This is incredible, but, but that's not finished. It's not finished. It's not finished. Okay, so um, you've got another three and a half years now after the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. And here's what Jesus said. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, begin at Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then the uttermost part of the earth to take the gospel. So read from me for Acts. We're going to read an event that takes place three, exactly three and a half years after the crucifixion. Go for it. All right, Acts chapter 7, I'm yes. reading from, verse 60, and then a little bit into chapter 8. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Okay, I'm going to show you something amazing right here. At the beginning of this explanation in verse 24, it says, 70 weeks are cut off for your people. Daniel's people, the Jewish people. At the end of that, what happens? The gospel right here, right on time, goes to the Gentiles. Mm. And so I gave this one a a bit of an interesting title, you know, the end for Israel. It's not the end for Israel. It's the end for Israel as being God's church. Up until this particular point, Israel was God's church. Now you have the Christian church as God's church. It's not the Anyone, any Jewish person can still be saved by accepting Jesus Christ. And of course, many do. So, yeah, the title was the title. But um, this is the end for Israel as being God's church. Now you have the Christian church because the very first time the gospel goes to the Gentiles. All right. That brings us to the end of that. Yeah, that was incredible. And uh, do you want to check if there's any questions? You have more things to say? I do have one more thing to say. We do questions right now because everybody's sitting back there. If you've got a calculator, you can run ahead of me and you can work this one out. When does the 2,300 years come to an end? When does the judgment begin? When does the time of the end begin? The period in the lead up to the end of time. Mm -hmm. You've got a calculator, you can run ahead of me and uh, throw it up on Facebook. Or YouTube. Put it up in the comments. Okay. Maybe we'll just take one question. Yes. And then I'll let you uh, finish here. Uh, This is from a viewer on Facebook, and she's asking, what are the three books in heaven? Thank you. Okay, so the three books in heaven, uh, the Bible describes the book of remembrance, Mm -hmm. the Bible describes the book of life, and uh, by implication you have the book of death. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm sure God has an even bigger library than just that, too. Yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> we can have a couple we more. We've we got time for a couple we more got, questions. Let's time. leave people hanging for a bit. And if you can figure out when this time period, you know, 457 BC, if you can figure out when it ends, throw it up on Facebook, put it in the comments, put it up on YouTube. We'd like to see whether there's any mathematicians out there this evening. All right. Uh, Here is a question, I think. This is from Philip on Facebook. Good to have you back, Philip. And he's asking, Adam's sin is on the unbelievers. People reborn to Jesus are children of God. They become descendants of Abraham. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. I I have uh, nothing to correct you on there. Okay. Um, this We're all descendants of Adam, but Jesus is definitely a descendant of Abraham. Okay. Uh, this one is from Sparrow on Facebook, and she is asking, will we know when Michael stands up and what will be happening on earth at that time? Okay. So that's an interesting one because uh, if you go to Daniel chapter 12, Daniel 12, you find this statement here. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of your people. And if you want to happen, know what's going to be happening on the world at that time, here's what it says. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. I think we will know about that. Mm. Uh, Even to that same time and at that time your people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. 
This is just fantastic news here. And then, of course, it goes on to describe the resurrection um, that takes place when Jesus comes back. Yes, we will know what's going on for sure. Mm. When, when Michael stands up, there's going to be a time of trouble such as there never was before. That's sort of the short answer. All right. Lyle, we've had a few people who took you up on your challenge. Oh, we did? And uh, here what? are the dates that are coming in. 1844. Uh-huh. Yes. 1844, 1845. Oh, okay. So do you want to comment on it? No one got 1843. No one put 1843, no. Okay, so your calculator should bring up 1843 because your calculator doesn't account for there being no zero year. The correct date is 1844. So congratulations to all those who got 1844. You did get the correct answer and uh, well done to you. And so here's the implication. Since 1844, we've been living in the time of the end. And the simple reality is this, and I challenge anybody, Take any of the signs of the times that are listed in the Bible, the signs that Jesus is coming back. And you can see that they have continued. They've always been there. Wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilences and earthquakes, etc. They have always been there. Put them on a chart and they will be sometimes up and sometimes down like this until you hit that date, 1844. And every single one of them from that point forward makes that steep J curve going up. Really? So not only has this prophecy been the greatest messianic prophecy there is in the Bible, telling us exactly when Messiah would appear and exactly when he would die and exactly when the Christian church would be founded with pinpoint accuracy, but it's also those events take place on earth to seal the fact that we are now living in the time of the end. Do we know when the end of time is? Not at all. But we know that we are in the period of the end. The birth planes are taking place right now around us and they are only going to increase as we get nearer to the return of Jesus Christ. This is so exciting. And I hope everybody that's listening is catching everything that you're sharing because it's so relevant. This, we're living in the time oh, of the end. Yeah, you just proved like... it from the Bible. Look, I want to let you have the final, final word. But yes. before I let you have that word, a reminder. Don't miss out on tonight's free offer. Text the word Messiah to the number on your screen, 0428-833-386. Or if you would like to talk with someone about tonight's subject, any questions, call the number as well and text the word, or not call it, text the word chat and we will get in touch with you. Lyle, um, we won't be back tomorrow night. We're back next week with the battle at the end. Next Wednesday. Next Wednesday night. Yes. But um, I just want to encourage all of our viewers to be back. Subscribe to our channel, hit the bell so that you get notified when we go live if you're on YouTube or like the Facebook page so that you also get notified. But Lyle, what would you like our uh, listeners to? One last thought right here. One last thought. Let me believe you with this one because, you know, some people are like, oh, oh, the judgment's happening right. Oh, I'm I'm not so sure about the fact the judgment's happening right now. Friends, relax. The judgment is the best thing ever. If you look what the Bible says in John chapter 5, And verse 22, it says, The Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son. There's the first thing to remember. Jesus is our judge. And if he's my judge, I've got nothing to fear. Then you go to 1 John, because it even gets better than that, because the Bible says that we will be assigned a defense attorney in heaven because we won't be able to afford one. No one can afford one there. It says... Uh, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a defense lawyer, and his name is Jesus Christ. Did you see that? The judgment in heaven is entirely rigged in your favor. The judge and the defense are both the same person. And on top of that, they want to be your best friend. If you walk into a court case where the judge is your best friend and he is your defense attorney, attorney, you're not going to lose that. Friends, this evening, as we think about the judgment, the solution to this is ever so simple. Why won't you make the decision right now and say, yes, I want Jesus to be my judge. I want him to be my defense and I want him to be my best friend. How do you have that experience? By giving your life to him right now at this moment. Just get on your knees and say, Jesus, come into my life. I surrender myself to you. And if you'd like help with that, then text the word chat. The number is, and I'm going to give it slowly, so get ready to write it down. 0428 833 
386-0428-833-386. We have so much enjoyed being able to chat with you about your decision for Jesus Christ. Just send us a message and any other question you've got, just send us through a chat right there. We would love to talk with you. And this evening, just give your life to Jesus Christ. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.